0: Welcome back, everyone, to another tale of the Resist 40, Tales of Outliers podcast. Sitting down this week with an absolute legend, Rob Dubay, who is probably one of the most humble individuals that I've ever met. Certainly, One of the most humble individuals that we've had on the podcast and uh, really, really an outlier in every sense of the word. He's the president and co-founder at ImageOne, as well as a contributor to Forbes, the author of the book Do Nothing, puts together the Do Nothing Retreat every year. And I'm going to let him tell that story and talk about what those different things are. But what a cool story that he has. Ultimately, his company was acquired for a very large amount of money and very quickly quickly, he realized that as an entrepreneur, he wasn't able to work for someone else. He saw the company culture and core values changing, something that he talks a lot about. He saw the system and operations of his company changing. And he shares the story of how he was ultimately, with his partner, able to get back the company and really start to redefine how company culture should be, how a company should run, and ultimately bring the company to where they are now. We talked about a variety of topics autonomous cars. We talked about the future, how things are changing with business, how companies need to be adapting. And then we also talked about routines. This individual gets up every morning at 4 a.m., goes to bed at 10 p.m., absolutely living what it means to resist your 40. So we are excited for this one. We think that you are going to find a lot of value in it. So without further ado, Rob Dubay. Welcome to another episode of Resist 40 Tales of Outliers. Today we are sitting with Rob Dubay, who is the president and co-founder of Image One, as well as the author of Do Nothing, as well as the author of multiple uh articles on Forbes some other platforms and I think he has a few more titles that we're probably going to get into throughout the podcast but Rob we appreciate you joining us today
1: you guys thank you so much for having me I love your podcast and uh I heard about you I had to reach out to you and you were kind enough to have me on so what else can I say amazing
2: that's awesome well Rob well thank you for joining the podcast I know we were talking a little bit before we started about some of the podcasts that you're into and and some of your interests so I'm sure we'll cover those so uh so we could hear those. But first off, where are you from? And describe a little bit about what growing up and childhood was like for you.
1: Sure. Well, I was born on the East Coast out in Hartford, Connecticut. But early on, we moved to the Detroit area. So I've really grown up in the Detroit area since I was quite young. Uh, Growing up um, was not without its challenges. My parents got divorced when I was uh, about eight years old. And um, that caused a lot of stress and anxiety in my life, along with uh, multiple other things that were going on, some health issues that I had. I had uh, horrible asthma. I had eczema, which is a skin uh, disorder. And I had a heart irregularity. And as an active kid, you put those three together, it makes some things pretty difficult. So, um, you know, growing up uh, here in in the Detroit area, um, I love it here. I'm still here. But it was a challenging upbringing, um, to to say the least. So, uh, and I'll talk a little bit more about that and how that comes full full circle to the book. Do nothing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I guess, Rob, when you were growing up, what uh, what type of student were you? What type of kid were you? Did you love outside? (laughs) Did you love the classroom? Um,
1: I was under the radar. Was my goal could I get average grades by just being good? <laughs> so it worked actually. So I was not a great student. I learned that uh, school was not, that wasn't for me. Um, you know, looking back on it, even thinking about my college experience, I, I you know, I, I think, you know, money could have been spent more wisely on the education part, but, you know, I think I grew up a lot during that time. So it was it was a worthwhile um, period of time going to college and graduating, but I, I was not a great student. Um, I just did the bare minimum. I knew in my heart, as I reflected on this as I've gotten older, I could tell that in my heart, I was just, I was meant to be an entrepreneur. I knew it early on. I knew I didn't need necessarily all this formal education because I'd always be in class thinking to myself and I would even tell my parents, I don't understand how I'm going to apply this in my real life. So I somehow I knew that early on. Yeah. I think everybody can relate
2: to that. Like asking, asking a math teacher, like, how am I ever going to use this like formula later on? In life? Right. Right. <laughs> how about you, you said you felt like you're an entrepreneur from an early age. Maybe you didn't know necessarily that's what it was or what entrepreneurship actually was, but did you have, like, what do you mean by that when you say you felt like you're an
0: entrepreneur early on?
1: Well, my parents have told me I was calculating, you know, gross margins on things from an early age, which I don't recall that, but my my father actually told me that um, somewhat recently. Um, but when, uh, in, when I was in ninth grade in high school, my best friend and I started selling these blow pop lollipops uh, out of our locker. So uh, we would buy them from his uncle. By the case, they equated to a nickel each. We'd resell them for a quarter and we'd have kids literally lined up and down the hallways, um, at lunchtime, waiting to buy these things. You know, we'd stand at our locker and we'd just have baggies of quarters in our pockets the rest of the day. I mean, we'd walk around school and be like, people would, the kids would be like, hey, the blow pop guys, or, you know, are you guys selling blow pops today? So, um that was our that was the first endeavor that I really remember. And then Joel Perlman, who's who's my best friend and he's still my business partner after all these years from the blow pops, we'd have all kinds of things we were doing through high school and college. We we had a million businesses.
0: Yeah. So when you were in school, I know that you under the radar is how you kind of put it.
1: Mm-hmm. As
0: you started to progress through school, were there certain areas that you started to get involved in, or did you kind of just try to stay under the radar really every year in school?
1: Well, no surprise in high school, I loved the business classes. I I really did. I mean, I, I still remember the teacher, Mr. Maxwell, and we had a school store. I loved working in the school store. I loved figuring out, you know, how much inventory we should have and how much we were making and all that. And so those classes I excelled in. When I went to college, I went to a liberal arts college and and the closest thing to business was more like an economics degree. You know, I just wasn't connecting to me uh, entrepreneurial from an entrepreneurial standpoint. Uh, And I ended up with a political science degree. And quite frankly, the reason I even went down that road was because I was interested in politics and the first class I took in political science, I got an A in, so I figured, oh my, I've never gotten an A. So I must be really good at this. But I found out in the subsequent classes that that was not the case. <laughs> so I barely graduated. <laughs> but so I did.
2: Wh- what college did you attend?
1: It's a small liberal arts college in um, Michigan called Albion College.
2: Oh, nice. Very nice. Yeah, I went to, uh, I went to a liberal arts school, so I can...
1: You can relate. It's three thousand students, I think, was the, yeah. the total. But you know, I met uh my wife and so I, I always say that's really the reason I went there. Um and uh I also took away some of the greatest relationships in my life from from there. So um I have nothing but positive memories, you know, as far as that goes.
2: Yeah. So you said you said um, you know, you and your friend who started that blow pops business in freshman year, and you just continued to have some other hustles along the way <laughs> when you're progressing into high school and college. What, can you give some examples? Like what, what you, yeah,
1: used? sure. Um, we would at, at in, I'm 48. So back then we had cassette tapes. <laughs> so, um, my dad's office had a cassette tape duplicator that they used for sales meetings and he brought it home and I would buy, you know, Michael Jackson's thriller, Cassette or something, and duplicate it and sell it for half the cost. I right. swear I did not know that was illegal, um, and we stopped doing that pretty quickly. Uh, we had um, we had a car wash business. Once we got our driver's license, we would go pick up people's cars at work and take them back to my house, and we had all the stuff needed to you know do a full detail on the car. And so our selling point was you don't have to come to us; we'll come get your car, and you won't you know it'll, by the time you're done with work, you'll come out. It'll be you know, sparkling, look like new, Uh, we sold t-shirts, we had all kinds of t-shirts that we sold throughout uh, college, Uh, the co-ed naked lacrosse t-shirts and things like that, Uh, any of the big games that were going on at, you know, my school was about an hour from University of Michigan, so we'd always make something with, uh, you know, Ohio State University of Michigan or something like that, and uh, sell a hundred of them or whatever, so.
0: Yeah. And I think, Rob, too, a lot of the stuff that you're naming is is relatively practical. Starting the car wash, but then the kind of the difference being, hey, we're going to pick it up or selling shirts, but being willing to go an hour away to kind of find that market. What were some of your friends saying while this was happening? Did they think, like, hey, why aren't you out at the parties or why aren't you doing what we're doing or did they kind of respect the hustle that you
1: had? That's actually a good question. Um uh, some probably maybe I got the sense they were a little annoyed by it. <laughs> so maybe that's cause I wasn't hanging out or doing some of the things they were doing. Um, some people maybe thought I wasn't studious enough as I should be cause they were in the library and killing it as far as the grades went. So, um, and some people thought it was great and wanted to partner with me on some of the t-shirt deals, you know, they wanted to get right in there with me. So, you know, it kind of ran the gamut. Yeah. Yeah.
2: <clears throat> so Rob, Obviously we're going to get into, you know, the businesses that you currently run today, but I'm curious as to your opinion on um what do you think what do you think college did for you in terms of helping your success today? Like what would you say some things you did in college where people should do a similar thing to help get on that right start or something that you really took away from that experience?
1: Well, for me, I know, you know, I grew up in college, you know, I matured a lot over the 4 years um I realized what I was truly passionate about. And um I think that, you know, I, I you could see where my where I was leaning with stuff. Obviously I was doing these little businesses, spending way more time on that than I was spending on classwork and things of that nature. Um, you know, so I to me that's what happened during college is I just grew up a lot. I matured and I knew very clearly, in fact, um when I when I graduated, I was one class short of graduate you know getting my degree, and I actually they let me walk graduation, but i didn't get a diploma in in my you know whatever they give you. Um, everyone else had a diploma, mine was empty because I was a class I was a class short, and I went to uh, the political science uh, head of the political science area. And I asked him if I could take a class at a a lesser school, basically, that was closer to my home, so I wouldn't have to do spring term there. And, you know, he was very resistant. And I'll never forget, it was uh, Dr. Levine. And I said, Dr. Levine, I promise you, I'm never going to use this political science degree. I just want to get my diploma. I'm going to go out and I'm going to start something. And I don't know what it is, but it's not gonna have anything to do with this degree. I promise you, please let me do this. And to his credit, he let me do it. He felt that passion and energy coming pouring out of me. I mean, it was a passionate plea. And uh, he let me go take it at the college by my class or by my house. And, you know, I got my degree.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So I think that's interesting, Rob, because obviously, four years. Working on that degree. Was there a specific time in college where you realized I'm never going to use this degree? I'm going to start my own business. The whole time. The whole time.
1: Yeah, I I remember literally going uh, home and and you know going and talking to my dad and crying and just saying I want out of school. I hate school. I can't stand it. Uh, Can I just? I think can I just go do something else? And he just you know he just said just do your best. Get the degree you'll be happy you did. And I am, I am glad I did that.
0: Yeah. So a lot of that decision to continue with school was based on kind of your dad encouraging it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he he's always been, both my mom and my dad have always been supportive of whatever I wanted to do. And, you know, they, they shared how they felt about things. My mom still well, she she it's, it's been about two years now. She hasn't asked me if I'm, st- if I'm still doing this business. <laughs> I started out of college. Are you still doing that business or are you going to get a job soon? <laughs> I swear to God.
2: That's too funny. That's such like a mom thing to say. Totally, totally.
1: <laughs> Don't you want something a little bit more secure?
0: I have to say, every time I talk to my dad about Resist 40, I I still don't think he grasped what it is that we're actually doing. But, you know, a lot of times, uh, just a few week, maybe a week ago, he had said, "Shane, I think uh, I think you should maybe get a website and try to have a website for your company." <laughs> said, yeah, we've had a website. For have a website. Now. But he just yeah, that's such like a mom Dad type moment. classic <laughs> classic.
1: I so, love it.
2: So you you graduate from school and you knew you wanted to start something. Mm-hmm. Uh, describe what that transition like was for you? Was
1: so for you. so Joel and I stayed in contact together. We were doing these businesses in the summer and then we'd partner up on these t-shirt things and discount cards and all these different things we were doing. And um, neither of us really had much in the way of job prospects, probably because we didn't really want to subconsciously. And Joel read an ad in the back of Entrepreneur, it's a classified ad actually, in the back of a magazine called Entrepreneur Magazine. And um, it was an ad to learn how to sell toner supplies for these new things. At the time, they were about three years old, called laser printers. And uh, it was something we could start out of our basement. And so we learned how to do it. I think we we took a, uh, our parents were kind enough to uh, loan us $5,000 and uh, allow us to use their basement, uh, Joel's parents' basement. And um, that's how we got started. We just would literally go to these office buildings and say, would you buy your toner supplies from us instead of whoever you're buying them from? And, you know, as luck would have it, I think, you know, a couple of uh, young guys out of college, I think a lot of the people who in these smaller businesses that we were calling on at the time would just take mercy on us. Just give these kids a chance. I mean, how bad can it be? So, (laughs) you know, that's we were just grinding it out but we loved it
0: yeah and I think what I'm probably most excited to kind of get into in a bit is the idea of culture within a company and I know that's something that you talk a lot about what what was it like when you were starting this company where I'd imagine and I don't know maybe you were super passionate about it but it was kind of selling toner going to other companies was that a stepping stone at the time or did you think hey this is something that we can really scale and eventually have that full company with employees and develop a company culture and do things different?
1: Well, I knew that we wanted to grow the company and that was about all we knew. Uh, Culture. I didn't even know what culture was. Core values. Didn't know anything about that. Roles in the company didn't know anything about that. I mean, Joel and I were just always hustling, you know, with all the businesses. And so, you know, there's a complexity when it's two people, but it's pretty simple. And then you have a third and and now it gets exponentially more complex and then a fourth and so on. And so when we had, you know, four or five people, um, you know, there was no structure. It was very confusing and frustrating and, you know, it tested the two of us for sure. And it's a testament to our friendship that we were able to always work through these challenges and frustrations together. But we went 10 years without a system for running the business. We were all over the place. I mean, uh, redundancies everywhere, Joel doing this and me doing the same thing. And then two weeks later, talking to each other and saying, you're doing that? I'm doing that too. Why are we both doing this? Because we're not communicating. (laughs) We have no system for what we're doing. So um, it took us a good 10 years to we could even figure anything out.
2: So that business was, was I guess, at the start, strictly door-to-door, like cold calls, in-person sales. That's, that's what it was. Family
1: like. and friends, references, you know, all that. Yep. Yeah.
2: Do you think, would you say that, that is like a, I guess, an influential experience in your life nowadays where, you know, you went door-to-door asking for business straight up in person like that's something that probably helps you speak to people now, communicate better and meet new people. like what would you say is a, like a real beneficial experience from that first business?
1: Yeah, I mean rejection, constant yeah. rejection, having to walk in nervous. I didn't want to walk into these offices and give them my card and try to you know figure out a creative way to talk to the right person or whatever with the receptionist who's the gatekeeper. Um, it definitely you definitely build a certain muscle doing that. Um, and I think it's a great experience for anybody, but especially entrepreneurs, because we have ideas, we have visions and when you have to go out and grind it and, you know, whether you're raising money or you're just selling a product like we were door to door, um, it, 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 uh, builds a lot of character for sure.
2: Is that, is that something that you would say, um, you see as, or that you would advise younger entrepreneurs is to have that type of experience, like get involved in sales, get involved in door-to-door, that type of uncomfortability? Um, is that something that you would advise to others?
1: I mean, I, it depends on the business. You know, yeah. I mean, now businesses are so much different, especially with the, um, you know, with the technology and stuff and how you reach people. So, I mean, I, I, I definitely think it's something you, you learn to appreciate salespeople more because I think that's the hardest job. Um and uh, so yeah I mean I think it's a great experience to, to go I, I don't know if, if it's yeah. for everybody but I think it's a great experience
0: yeah I was reading an, an article uh, a few days ago that I found really interesting but after thinking about it it makes total sense and it was this idea that right now there's so many people that are selling digitally and selling through social media and it's as easy as hey click my link you know you get the commission But what's happening is these people are developing such a a large following. And then when they actually do make that transition or attempt to make that transition to go to a retailer or to sit down with someone who might actually carry their product, they're not able to actually, one, they don't know how to do it. They don't know the structure that needs to be set up. It's kind of like what you were saying. They don't necessarily have a system in place. And I feel like with our generation, that is something that's kind of lost is that door to door aggressive and aggressive in the sense of just getting out of your comfort zone and being willing to take that rejection.
1: Yeah, I love what you're saying, you know, and and it's I'm curious about you guys because with what you're doing, how much what what is getting out of your comfort zone. I like that particularly more than saying, you know, go out and cold call because maybe a particular business doesn't call for that per se, but what is getting out of your comfort zone and doing things that you maybe won't be doing later, but you'll have an appreciation for? What are you guys doing that's outside the comfort zone with your business?
2: I mean, I would say easily off the start with starting this podcast for sure. Yeah. I'd like that's great. and putting that out, just the, putting your views and, and having your thoughts be recorded and put out to the public where like anybody can listen to them and hearing yourself speak and hearing that podcast run back. Uh, like it's to this day, it's still kind of weird to listen to uh-huh. a of ours just cause it's different to listen to yourself. So I would say that right there is huge of just putting, putting our thoughts out there with the podcast. But then it's like, to your point of, you know, how beneficial the door to door sales, it's the same for me where it's like, it's so much easier to communicate with people now because we've had, you know over 30 conversations recorded yeah with individuals a lot of which we've never spoken to before like before this conversation we really never had dialogue but having the podcast helps with communication and helps with you know meeting new people
0: and networking and the social skills in general
1: yeah oh, that's great
0: i think too i mean i would i would 100% say the podcast as well especially because I mean, Trev and I have a lot of the same closer friends and we have the opportunity to sit down one-on-one with them and talk about the podcast, but it's the hundreds of other people that we went to school with or that we played a sport with that we don't necessarily get to explain the whole company to. And then my fear getting out of my comfort zone is thinking, wait, am I explaining the company the right way through the podcast? Or is someone seeing what we're building and kind of thinking, why are they doing this on their weekends? Why are they doing this, you know, after their day job? And it's, I guess, getting, getting out of your comfort zone in that sense, and then starting to make an ask, Hey, we're selling shirts. Would you be interested in buying one? Hey, we have a podcast. Would you subscribe? Because we don't necessarily have these close, close relationships with these people. But I mean, it's, that's the way that it works. That's how you actually start to build that community.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So true. It's, it's amazing what you guys are doing in and, and the podcast. It's a new medium um, these days for guys like you. And I, I love what you were saying about listening to yourself on the podcast, because that, I mean, just honing in on your message. And, you know, I'm sure if you're like me, you know, I'm, I'm cringing. When I hear him, it's like, oh, I can't believe I said it like that. You know, is that what I sound like? Yeah. And so you keep working on it and working on it. And that's the beauty of getting outside your comfort zone is your fear starts to diminish and you can you find out what you're really made of. Uh, for sure. So
2: while we're on that topic of podcasts and listening to ourselves, um, you, we kind of talked about this before some of your favorite podcasts, but can you, you know, give some podcasts that you really enjoy or, or some things that you like to listen yeah. to?
1: I mean, I love Tim, Tim Ferriss's podcast. I mentioned that to you. Uh, the long form, you know, he's going deep on, um, you know, opening my mind to different things in the world, different techniques. I'm a big fan of his books, Tools of Titans and uh, Tribe of Mentors in particular. Uh, the last two years, those have been really influential to me. Uh, and the, the wide range of people that he's talking to um, that just give, you know, get, get me out of the bubble that I'm in and open my mind to other things that are going on in this world and the way people are approaching success in so many different ways. And I'm always listening for not something huge. I'm a big fan of the nuggets. That That's how I could kind of look back on my career and say, you know, sometimes people might ask, what was the big defining moment? And I always say, I don't necessarily have a defining moment per se. I have a lot of nuggets that add up to a, a big thing. And so um, Tim Ferriss's podcast have done that, has done that for me. Uh, Dan Sullivan and Peter Diamas have a podcast called Exponential Growth. And, you know, they're futurists. And so they're talking about the way the world is going to be in 10 years. And, you know, when I share some of their, um, uh, some of the things I learned from them with people out in the community, you know, that I'm talking to, whether they be my team members or even family members or whatever, I see their eyes start to glaze over, like, they can't even comprehend some of the things that that I'm saying that I really believe are going to happen. I mean, I 100% believe it. So, um, you know. Sure. Well, you know, the the one that we're probably all hearing the most about is autonomous cars, cars, cars as a service. So, for example, my grandkids most likely will not have a driver's license. They will just summon a car. Um, The the cars will be tied into our schedules. So let's just say I have an eight o'clock meeting and, and the car will know. And this is just a car as a service. It's not my car. But the subscription that I uh, have with the car service will be tied into my calendar and pick me up at just the right time based on traffic patterns and based on how long it gets from, needs to get me from point A to point B. And I'll hop in the car and I'll do work or I'll take a nap or whatever. And, and it may even know based on your sleep patterns how tired you might be. And it might send a certain type of car that has a certain type of setup so you could take a nap. So there's one example of where things are going. Uh, there, there's the Hyperloop, which is going to happen. Um, the, the, uh, Peter Diamandis and Elon Musk are, are part of that company. And this is a high-speed train that is very efficient. It's twice the speed as, as an airliner. Uh, it goes underground. It's small. It's, it's not you know a gigantic subway type of thing. The footprint is small. When I say it's small, the footprint is small. Yeah. It's extremely quiet and smooth uh they're already testing it in the desert of las vegas it's amazing you could probably youtube it and uh watch that test um and and it's going to get uh get people from la to to uh san francisco in like 25 minutes i'm in detroit it's going to take us from detroit to chicago in 25 minutes yeah so
2: i i saw the one article they said um dc to new york city in like 25 30 minutes yep which is ridiculous
1: it, it, this is happening guys there's no question about it.
0: So, looking at that, Rob, I guess, and this is just a question that came up: Do you see companies like, I mean, more of the traditional ones, so the Ford or uh, Toyota, whoever it is, being involved in that scene, or do you really just see a company like Tesla taking it over and the other companies not being able to adapt?
1: Well, I'm just—I'm going to go off based of—I'm uh, going to uh, share my thoughts based on what i've learned from peter diamana so it, this is what he says really and that is there's probably going to be about two car companies left uh in the next 10 to 15 years so um you know i'm in detroit and you know boy i hope it's one or both of them um you know it feels like they're a little behind i mean you you know T- tesla's selling i think 5000 cars a, a week right now and uh you know they're already autonomous. It's just the laws aren't in place to allow that to happen on a regular basis, but you know, it it will take you from point A to point B. You just need to be in the driver's seat and be prepared. Um, And I just don't see these vehicles from the, the, America car or the Detroit car makers right now from GM and Ford. Uh, I being in the area, I hear a lot of the technology they're working on. And and Ford's building like a Google type campus, and they're working very hard. I know um, to uh, you know bring in the best talent in the world. And GM uh, is heavily invested in Lyft, and Lyft is going to be in the autonomous car business just like Uber is. So you know, I don't know how fast they can accelerate behind. You know, I don't know what's going on behind the scenes. You see it at the forefront with Tesla because that's just they're new and they're. You could see it. That's just, this is what they do. Um, but it doesn't mean the the Detroit automakers can't catch up, and, and I hope they do.
0: Yeah, I think this is a good transition, Rob, into Image One and kind of what it is that you're building. I had read today that there was a company, a 3D printing company that had made a house. Um, it had cost them essentially $10,000 and they're working right now to get that price down to 4,000 <laughs> and building 100 of those houses uh, to put, I forget the country, but in a, a lower SES country by next year. So I guess, and I don't want you to kind of skip anything, but talk about that transition from starting off in the basement and how you kind of started to grow your company.
1: Yeah, so um, we evolved from selling toner supplies to uh, doing what is called document lifecycle management, managed print services, where we go into medium and enterprise size companies and we manage all the multifunction printers, copiers, laser printers, all those sorts of things. And uh, larger companies in particular sometimes need us to have one, two, maybe even more people actually on site to manage this for them. Every single day. So we have team members that are actually located on site at some of these customers. Um, And so that's what it's evolved to. Well, we have a vision for 2026. It's a it's a written and stated vision. And as part of that, what I'll tell you is I don't know that that's the business we're going to be in. Let me ask you guys a question. How much do you print?
2: Not that much, to be honest. No. Yeah. I,
1: you know, your, your generation is very comfortable not printing. Quite frankly, I am too. I don't like papers. I, I, I just, I've gotten accustomed to doing everything electronically. Yeah. And so when I have papers, I'm, I'm almost annoyed. So, you know, our, our industry is going to shift. There's going to be a tipping point in the next, you know, five to 10 years. I don't know when it is. But, you know, we've got to be ahead of it. So we're investing heavily into software solutions. We have a software division that actually goes into clients and helps teach them how to not print, how to have digital workflow within their organizations so they can, you know, instead of printing things and having them go from point A to point B to point C, um, you know, they're doing everything digitally. Uh, And then who knows what the future uh, brings, you know, we have the software development part of our company, which, you know, we're we're working very hard to to understand where our customers are going, so we can be there to uh, meet them, and you know, we believe that that technology is going to be that place. As far as three D printing goes, that's another interesting part. It's a it's actually a, even though I'm in the print business, it's a different avenue for us but it's something we're staying very on top of and um, we we've invested in a, a software company called maker os which is a software as a service that that uh, works with companies that do 3d printing helps them run their business it's the back end and um and so you know we're 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 trying to hedge our bets with with investments like that so the 3d printing space is fascinating to me You know, we're going to be printing household items at, you know, we're going to have a little printer in the future and it'll print just, you know, things we need like a pen, you know, you won't go, you won't go buy pens at the office store, office supply store, you know, or, or it could be a utensil, you know, you just print it, whatever you need. So it's crazy. These houses, cars, they printed cars. Now I've seen actual operational cars, not that they meet the safety standards, but they can print, they can print them. It's fascinating.
2: Yeah. So would you say that ability to see, um, for you as an entrepreneur, that vision of like, you know, things are changing and your business is going to have to adapt as a reason why, um, as a reason why you think you'll be successful because you don't fear that, that, you know, longing on to how things were done in the past and that resistance to change.
1: Yeah, I think so. I'm psyched, actually. I love it. I mean, I get I get excited. I'm like, let's teach people how not to print, even though it's the bread and butter of our company. You know, and I'll have people saying, but wait, aren't we just taking food from ourselves? And I'm like, well, it might seem that way right now. But at some point, if we want to be a long term, sustainable company, like we have been for 27 years, We got to be on top of it and we got to be excited about it because, you know, what we really do is just stuff, you know, the products and services. To me, that's just stuff. You know, what we really do is our culture. You know, it's providing extraordinary experiences that positively impact the lives of our team members, you know, helping our customers meet their goals. You know, their goals change all the time because technology is changing all the time. I get psyched about that kind of stuff. How we do that, what we're delivering, that's just based on what their needs are. You know, and so we got to be at the forefront of that. And we got smart enough people, we can change. You know, that's not the hard part. We know we could change. We've had to do it before. And that's going to be something we're going to have to do forever. Tell me a company that's out there that hasn't had to.
2: That's so true. You know? Yeah. And, and that's a perfect um, transition. into my question, I was going to ask you about, about company culture, because you, you mentioned earlier when you first started this business that you had no clue what company culture was or <laughs> core values. Can you tell us what your company culture is? Like What goes into that? And maybe some core values as well?
1: Yeah. Well, let me first start by saying how, how we got into this, and this could be a good tool for some of your listeners, is we made a very small acquisition of a, um, an, a very small IT company. It had a few employees and a small amount of revenue. And we thought it was going to be the perfect complement to our company. And this was 18 years ago. And so um, we brought them in, uh, we started. We let our customers know we have this new service offering. We got our team all jazzed up about it, but we realized it was a completely different business. Something wasn't jiving. Something wasn't working. And uh, that was within three months, we realized that we could just you could just feel it. And I'm glad we had the awareness of that. And we went out to our network, we shared, we were vulnerable, we shared with people that what wasn't working, they ended up introducing us to a person who has become a really good friend of mine, and and, uh, definitely a mentor, Gino Wickman. And Gino had just sold his uh, business, his family business. And he was teaching companies how to run their company, having a system for running their company. And, uh, but that wasn't why we met with him. We met with him because somebody had told us he's kind of a a good sounding board and a voice of reason. So we met with him, we told him what was going on. And so first and foremost, his advice was stay focused on your core competency. Um, Unless you have the money to expand and really put another separate focus on whatever it is that's different than your core competency, stay focused. He actually recommended a great book called Focus by Al Reese. And so that was a turning point for us. We started working with him and he taught us a process that he created called the entrepreneurial operating system. And it's completely defined in a book called Traction. And that's when everything shifted for us. And it started by creating our core values. And um, from there, Putting a real focus on our vision, on traction. You know that means execution. So you have your vision, and then you need you need to execute on it. Uh, It's putting a focus on your scorecard data. Uh, It's putting a focus on rhythms so you can identify, discuss, and solve your issues quickly. And so these are sort of some of the key concepts that we started to put in place with the company now when we start with the values we had to look once we define them we had to start look at our team members and say holy mackerel some of these people are really great at what they do but they actually don't fit our values so we we have to start saying we had to start working with some of the team members and saying Okay. Look, you know we have we're we're open and honest here. That's one of our values: being open and honest, working with integrity, humility, and vulnerability. And you're not humble, and you're not vulnerable. Can you get there? We'll work with you, but if you can't, it doesn't work anymore. And and that's that's tough, you know, because you end up having to make some changes because all of a sudden they don't fit, and you don't fit them either. And so we had to, we had to uh, go through a very painful few years. And learn what it really means to live your values, because you have to make tough, tough decisions. And they usually involve people at the outset, Uh, unless you're in your phase where the two of you can set this up and be really diligent about anybody that comes into the company, it will adhere to these values and there'll be a value fit before you even bring them in. So, you know, it starts there and um and you know we, we started to build the culture on top of the the values and 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 that was um a turning point because with the entrepreneur operating system, we started to really hone in on running the company efficiently, and everybody sort of got in a groove, and we were doing it so well that in two thousand four, a public company approached us. And they were interested in bringing on managed print services as an offering to what they were doing and wanted to acquire a company. And we went through due diligence with them and we uh, were asked to give a presentation to their board of directors and the, their um, leadership team. And I didn't know. I mean, we had this little business. I'd never done anything like this. I said to the president of the company, "What do you want me to present on?" He's, I don't know, just tell them how you run the business, that system you use, or whatever. So I put together a deck. I went in there. I said, "This is how we run the business." I went through everything that I just shared with you. By the end of the meet, I mean, I could tell they they were they were with me. And at the end of the meeting, uh, the president came up to me and he said. That was awesome. In fact, people are coming up to him and saying, these guys know what they're doing. They're running a tight ship over there. In fact, they make acquisitions all the time. And usually it it's the opposite. The, the, you know, the, the, it's, not run, it's not run well. So it gave him an awful lot of confidence, actually improved our multiple for the sale. And um, and so I I can't speak enough to, you know, a company say like at your stage. Grab a system. There's other ones out there too. The Rockefeller Habits. Vern Harnish has a great one. Uh, you can read his book, um, and uh, or or Traction, which is what we use, and get a system in place. Set those values. Get in the rhythms. Start doing all the right things now, and you will, you know, you'll accelerate ten times faster yeah. once you do that.
0: So I guess Rob, I talk about. In your article, you write after you made that sale, what should have been obviously one of the most exciting days, and your partner, Joel and you had talked about it <laughs> before, you go out to dinner and you just you both were bummed.
1: <laughs> well, actually, we weren't bummed. Um okay. I think I think what really happened was we were exhausted and and it just hit us what just happened. And so, um, we realized all of a sudden we were employees of this company, and and it was sort of like we didn't know what to expect. Like we knew we were going to have a boss, and we'd have to report things now to that person. And what was this going to be like? And Joel was sick that day, and I had to go give a talk at my daughter's class, and she was like in I can't remember, fifth grade or second grade, I can't remember. But you know, she, it was just all surreal. Everything was surreal that day. And it, it was it was how it should be. It was it was humbling. The whole thing was just humbling. And so we had some more money in our bank account or something. But um, I looked at it. I actually looked at my bank account. And I was like, wow. It's like I was looking at it on a computer and it was just like, okay what does this even mean? I don't even know. <laughs> you know. Like I didn't feel any different. I wasn't, I knew I'm not the type. I wasn't going to run out and buy something. It didn't, those things just didn't matter to me. So it was just, it was different. And so, um, you know, we we just went back to work the next day and did the same things we were doing. And then as time started to go on, you know, We'd have executives calling us and saying, can you send us the, this report or we need you to travel over here now on a moment's notice. And it became a very anxious time uh, in my life. And, um, you know, I, upon reflection, it was just we weren't in control anymore. There were other people in control. They had ideas. They had vision. And it wasn't ours. And so I worked for them and I had to, you know, I could push back all I wanted. It didn't matter. At the end of the day, it was going to be their call. And I had to go along with it because we had an employment contract or I could leave. And we did have some buyout money that was coming to us. They tied it in. And so um, what ended up happening was there was a whole bunch of executive turnover. And after uh, 16 months, a new CEO came in. And we went and met with him and we said, what's going on here? Things aren't working out. We've had all this executive turnover. And he got—he kind of listened to the whole thing that was going on. And he contacted us a couple of weeks later and he said, would you guys forego the last two buyouts and you can have the company back? And um, after hearing everything I just said to you, you're probably thinking, yeah, for sure. But we were kind of done with it, actually. And we even thought, you know, I don't know if we want to do that. We only had 18 months left to go. We thought we could maybe ride it out, get our two last payments, and then go do something different. But we thought about it, and this book landed on my desk called Small Giants, Companies that Choose to Be Great Instead of Big. Didn't mean they weren't big, but they chose to be great first. And I read the book, and it was really inspiring. And Joel read it, and we said, you know what? Let's do this. Let's take the book back and adhere to these six qualities of small giants. And um, that's ultimately what we ended up doing. So we took the company back. We forgave those last two payments. And we just were super focused on culture and building a great company, first and foremost. And big would be second.
0: Yeah. And talk about what is that process like, Rob, where you for so long work on creating a company culture or even... I know at first you didn't necessarily have one, but you started to develop one. What are some things that had that new company come in, acquired you and started to change? What are some things that would have caused you to walk away from that?
1: Now, are you asking me what, when I was involved with them?
0: When you were involved with them. So you get acquired. Are there certain things from, you know, a mission standpoint, a core value standpoint, that had they started to change would have kind of caused you to walk away?
1: Well, our cultures were different for sure. And uh, neither one was better. It was just, they were different. And uh, I think as an entrepreneur at heart, I just had a hard time working for somebody. And I, I, you know, I I might call it things that might seem common sense to me, but it doesn't matter what I thought because I wasn't in charge. And so, um, uh, ultimately I had to realize in the the, 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 one of the many takeaways and lessons that I learned through that process is I don't think I'm employable, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know? And I think that's a good thing for me to know, because yeah. if I were to ever sell the business again, there's no way I could stay on board.
2: Yeah. So you, you strike me as a guy who's very organized and has probably some habits, what do you have? Any daily <laughs> habits or anything that you do that you would advise other people to do, or, or like? What sure. do you, what's a, what's a daily schedule like for you?
1: <laughs> okay. Well, first of all, um, one of the top keys to my success is I meditate every day, and uh, I was in. I mentioned at the outset I had a lot of anxiety in running the business, uh, starting a business with my best friend in the basement, making no money. Uh, I got married one year out of college. So started a business, then got married. Then I had a kid two years later. I had, we had our son. Um, That was just icing on the anxiety cake. Uh, When we sold the business, uh, you know, just added to it. All along, I was looking for ways to be helpful. I did go to therapy and that was really helpful cause and effect for me, but it didn't calm my anxiety. I just knew where it was coming from. And uh, so meditation, I found by accident, I was, it was 2005, the summer after we sold the business, I was on vacation. Um, we were, I, there were things with beyond my control that were happening that I was very frustrated about. It was on the verge of tears, actually. And I, I was in this house, and I looked over at this chair, and i had read about meditation. I said to myself, Rob, just go sit in that chair and breathe in and breathe out. And I did, and I actually felt a little bit better. I felt calmer. I felt clearer in my mind. Problems didn't go away. Neither did my frustrations, but I just felt calmer. And I thought maybe there's something to this. So I started a meditation practice, um, you know, a daily meditation practice over the years. I've been doing that for 13 years now. So that's my number one thing. Is, is that
2: morning time you wake up and meditate? Well, I do
1: it in the morning and in the evening. But you know, I think everybody finds their groove. Uh, f- for the people that meditation connect that for people that connect to meditation, um, my book "Do Nothing: The Most Rewarding Leadership Challenge You'll Ever Take" is a guide for uh, leaders and to asking them to take on that challenge, try it out, and, and see if it's helpful to you. In in Tim Ferriss' book. Um, uh he he talks of he talks, I think it was a hundred. He he took a hundred of the best interviews, and the most common thread he found with 80 of the hundred was they all meditated daily. So they they you know, there's there's something to it. Um and so I wake up early, I wake up at four in the morning and I meditate for 45 minutes, but I'm telling you, most people don't need to do that. It's just what I do. So Uh, that's, that's what I do in the morning. I do a stretching exercise, uh, in the morning after, and just to kind of limber up and get myself going. I have a little something to eat and then I go for a run. I'm a runner. So that works for me. I like to get outside, but I do live in Michigan. And if it's below 27 degrees, I won't go. If it's above, I will. So I don't have to think about it. That's another key thing. Do as many things you could do that you don't have to think about including what you wear for the day. Uh, keep it simple. And so I go out for my run. I come back. I do anywhere between tw- 20 and 45 minutes of yoga. Uh, I do it online. I don't go to a yoga studio because that's I, that's time that's out of my control. I want to control my time to the best of my ability. So, you know, you, there's a mil- I use something called Yoga Glow, but there's a million yoga things that you can find if that's what you're interested in. So uh, once I do that, um, I uh, get ready for the day real quick and I start to check in with, with uh, my top three. What are the top three things that I need to do today to move myself forward? So I have my list, I pick out the top three, as I mentioned, could be one to five really, but let's call it top three for the purposes of this discussion. And now I start setting up my day. I look at the calendar, I start to see wow. What's on the docket for rhythm meetings, you know, people I'm connecting with, whatever they might be, uh, and make sure that I could get in those top three things um, without a doubt to make sure that I'm moving everything for the company, myself, whatever it might be. Um, I stay very diligent with the communication rhythms. I I can't put enough emphasis on communication. Um, We say at image one, communicate to the third, see to the third. Um, communicate 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 um, <clears throat> try to get home uh, at a reasonable hour uh, somewhere maybe around five thirty or six so I can spend time with my family and have dinner with everybody and once we're we're done with that maybe around seven o'clock or so everybody's off with with whatever they're doing and i'll check in with email and I usually check in with email two to three times a day uh, because that's a that's a um, Um, a time to not be a roadblock. I don't want to be roadblocks for people. They have questions. They might have uh, things that, you know, we need to move forward or whatever. So I want to make sure I'm always getting back to people with the emails. And I do find email to be efficient if used in the right way. Uh, I'll probably be, um, you know, with my email or or whatever until about eight 30 or nine o'clock. And then I'm usually pretty wiped out. I'm ready to be horizontal in my bed, but, 20 minutes of meditation, and there's not been a time where I've regretted that because all this stuff that happened during the day is up here, and this is a great time for me to settle it. So if you take a jar and there's some mud in it and you shake it up, that's what's going on in my brain. And by setting it down and letting it settle and just being aware of my thoughts and coming back to my breath, it's a great time for me to, you know, kind of gain some perspective on what really matters in life and then off to bed and, uh, next day, let's do it again.
0: Nice. (laughs) That's pretty much 18 or so hours of your day that you have time blocked. When did you start that practice from really, I mean, including the meditation, I know that came at a crucial time in your life, but were you always someone who had that strict regimented schedule? Or was that something that you kind of developed later
1: on in life? I definitely developed it through through life. Now, had I known a lot of the things I know today, I I would have definitely taken that on. Um, You know, I definitely have a discipline piece to me. So I think for me, it probably comes a little bit easier, maybe, you know, more naturally than for others. And I work with plenty of people. And, you know, so, you know, I think any sort of discipline, that you can get in your life, even if it's two or three things, especially professionally that help move you forward, you know, I think is is very critical. One, one of the things that is more of um, a something that you might want to do. You know, I like, I like to look at my vision and goals daily. Um, but it, you know, for most people, if they could do that monthly or quarterly, I think that's great, but just having real clarity about where you're going and why is is huge. Having a vision for the future, and then breaking it down into those sort of bite-sized pieces. So breaking, having a vision, in my case, 10 years out in the future, an inspirational story for where I'm at, and then t- taking it down to where I'm at in five years that gets me to the 10-year, and then one year to gets me to the five-year to get me to the 10-year, and then 90-day sprints are really helpful. Now, I have a buddy. I have a vision and goals buddy. And so we meet monthly. So that's my time where we challenge each other. So I highly recommend that you find that buddy. Um, and in your guys' case, you know it's great to find somebody with an outside perspective, so you guys can come back together, share your personal vision and goals, and say, are we in alignment together? Because you know if one of you, if one of you wants to be someplace in ten years, that's way different than the other one. You, it's better to know that now than you know in six years.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's huge. So looking as you kind of reverse engineer where you want to be in 10 years, talk to us about that. Where, where do you see yourself around the age of 60 or so?
1: <laughs> what? 60? Holy mackerel. Uh, well, my vision is, is now two years. My 10-year vision is now two years in, so it's 2026. Okay. And I see myself working with an amazing team of people that are teaching me constantly. I look at myself as the culture guy at the company. So the chief culture officer that, you know, I'm spending all my time enhancing the culture, enhancing the culture, working with people, teaching and, um, and helping them reach their full potential. So, you know, I I believe that that's where I'm going to be my strongest in eight years. Um, And uh, from a personal standpoint, I'll just say, uh, I, I, I hope to travel in a very convenient way. And I don't know what that looks like in eight years, but what it would look like right now is I'd have access to private aviation. And that's important to me because I've learned from, ta- from being a part, you know, doing some private travel uh, on planes and whatnot. It's a game changer. Right. You know, you get from point A to point B is so much more efficiently and you have so much more energy. With it, So that's a goal. So, you know, there's a financial aspect to that. And I got to work towards that. Um, you know, we, we personally, we, you know, have my wife and I have some travel plans, we want to see every single um, tennis grand slam uh, in the world. So there's four of them. This year, we're going in May, we're going to the French Open. So I'm going to cross one of them off my list. Um, and we rounded out in 2026 at the Australian Open. So um, my wife and I have written our vision together. You know, that's another important component is when you have a life partner, uh, it's important that, that not just my business partner, Joel, is tied into my vision, but my life partner, my wife, is tied into it as well. And, and so, um, you know, those are a couple of things. I, I, I'd like to take a sabbatical. I'd like to um, get away from email for a defined period of time, whether it be a month or a quarter or maybe even a year and just see what that would be like. I go on silent retreats. I started going on silent retreats for uh, a week at a time. Now I do two per year. I'd like to do a month in the next eight years where I go away, no talking for a month. So um, there's some, there's some things that are, are, are in the vision. I
0: love it. I was in uh, Thailand and we were, I mean, obviously that's a the monk community in a lot of ways and a lot of silence, a lot of those experiences. And it was just fascinating to kind of see that culture and experience a bit of it where uh-huh. we are, I guess, kind of, as we wrap up, Rob, talk about your do nothing retreat, because I know meditation is probably the biggest thing that grounds you through everything that you're involved in. I think that's a really cool initiative that you're working on.
1: Thank you so much for asking about that. So, um I get a lot of curious questions from entrepreneurs and business leaders who have heard I've got on these retreats and like, what do you do at that at the I mean how how can you find the time to even do that? And I always say I can't afford not to do it actually. As a leader and as a person showing up in this world, this is the time where i turn off all the electronics there is no email there is nothing stimulating my mind there's no social media there's no there's nothing for me to read and and strive towards it's a time to just be and you know i i have this thing where i can actually feel my brain sometimes where it starts to hurt you know in a weird kind of way i can't really explain the sensation but it feels full and this is a time where it starts to uh, I start to feel my brain again, actually, when I go on these retreats. And I got all these curious questions. And I would say, you know, you should, you know, maybe check it out and see what you think. Oh, no, I could never do that. And so I decided after one of my retreats, I came back and I was dealing with a really uh, challenging situation. But I was dealing with it pretty well, actually. And I thought, wow, these retreats are really helping me. It was the first time I really like felt the effect of... Being able to deal with a really stressful situation in a really calm way. And I thought, I ought to like put it out there. And what if I actually set up a retreat for, and make it specifically for leaders? And I'll design it. It'll be the right amount of time. It'll be the perfect travel itinerary. It'll be the perfect agenda for people like myself, you know? And it was just a, a wacky idea. And I started to tell people about that. And they're like, oh, yeah, if you do it, let me know. I, I might be interested. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. I call that my scary. That was my last year's scary, was to actually plan this thing. And I did it. And it's happening in April. I got like one spot left. And I got leaders coming from all over the country that are running companies and just wanna take their leadership to the next level. They've gone to conferences, they've learned how to be really disciplined and organized and honed in on being the best in their industry uh, at whatever it is they do. And they're looking at this to be the next level leadership tool for them uh, at their companies. And obviously it translates into their personal lives as well. And so um, do nothing book, you just click on the link to the retreat, you'll you you can learn all about what it's what's going to happen and all that kind of stuff. But I am absolutely psyched for this. I can't even believe it's happening.
2: Yeah, that's so cool. Because like I said, before the podcast, um, I just finished reading 10% um, happier. And that's something that Mr. Harris was talking about is his first experience. At one of these silent retreats, um, I feel like I, it's one of those things in my life that I just keep hearing about. Where it's maybe something that I would want to try. But you mentioned there um, how you've you know got a lot of curious questions from um, you know entrepreneurs about these types of retreats. We ask every one of our guests um, a curious question that normally stumps people. Um, but you're you have a very analytical mind, so I'm curious how you're <laughs> going to answer this. And that would be. Um, and also a very futurist. It's, it's a very futurist type question. So if, if you were to encounter um, uh, an alien species or another form of, of life that uh, traveled to planet Earth, and you had to describe um, society to them and, and the world that we live in, how would you describe that to them?
1: Mm. Wow, that's a great question, by the way. I really like that. So I'm, I'm going to describe society as I see it today. We are a society that is being affected by, the, um, by a lot of the media, a lot of the things that we're hearing and seeing, and it's coming at us very fast. So what's happening is many people are getting a view on the world that is actually a little skewed. And where I see it as being skewed is we're actually a much safer and a much better place than we were 40 or 50 years ago. There's less war. There's less famine. And there should be less than there is today, actually, based on the information we have. But we've come so far. And so what I'm starting to notice is that there is an awareness arising. And we're starting to realize how truly interconnected that we are. For example, and this is like what you and I are doing right now seems like a no-brainer. I see you guys. We're talking over this something. Wherever it's going, we're having a conversation. And we're, we're like, it's as if we're in the room together. Yeah. And and so what is it going to be like in the next few years? So to this alien, what I, what I would say is we're really evolving fast right now. And we're starting to really come together as a society, as a worldwide society. We're starting to notice the, the countries that are doing things better and the countries that aren't doing things. And we're calling those countries out and we're putting pressure on them. And it's, it's, um, it's truly remarkable what's happening, and, um, and I'm excited about it. And I, then I would like to ask the alien, what is it like where, where are the alien's at? And is, is there peace, you know? And, and are they living harmoniously? Um, because I, I'm hearing a lot these days about, you know, happiness, you know, um, and, and people kind of getting more perspective. Um, you know, especially in your generation, things don't seem to be as important as a fluidity in life seems to be important. And I'm excited for your generation to be the future leaders of our company, of our uh, company, of our country, because you have a different viewpoint on the world that is is much more, you know, in where it's, we're much more interconnected. And, and you're you're seeing things and you're getting places. Um, much uh, faster than than my generation could, and, and so you have you just have this worldview now that's much wiser at a younger age. It's really cool.
0: So looking at that, Rob, does the ease of access and kind of where we're heading as a society make individuals happier in the future? Do you think?
1: I hope so. I'm optimistic about it. I think that when we see bad things happening, it really upsets us and even if it's not in our own country and before a lot of times it was just about what was going on here or what you might read in the newspaper back in the day you know about what was going on in other places and now where if something's not going right, we're going to those places fast. We're coming together. you know it, look it's not perfect I, I don't want to sugarcoat it um, but you know we we we, I think the majority of people in the world, when you get face-to-face with them, whether it's through, through a camera like this or physically, because we can get places so much easier than we used to, you start to realize that we're just all the same. And, and once we start to realize that, we just have such a greater respect for each other and we want the best for each other because they're just like me. They, ha- they are in pain just the same way I am in you know and and so yeah, I do i think I think in the I think in the future it's going to be a happier place, I really do
0: yeah, awesome, so looking our the second question that we ask every guest, Rob, looking at kind of how you see the world and how you would describe it, if you had one final post on either Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, whatever platform, one final post, what would that be what would what would the image be, and how would you caption it <laughs>
1: well peace you know and it would be it would be it would be a beautiful uh mountain scene you know that just evokes that feeling so so when people see it you know they almost don't need the word they yeah. just get it
2: i love that and how would how would you want people to look back on your life and describe you like what what would you like to be remembered for
1: well I'll get, the short answer to that is is just uh, that I'm very present with whomever I'm with in the moment, in that moment with them, that they felt like I was very present with them. Yes. So.
0: Awesome, Rob. Where can people connect with you with uh, your book, with your company, with the retreat? Where are you active
1: on? Thank you for asking. Donothingbook.com. dot com. You've got all the social. Uh, links there, uh, which you could connect with me on. You can connect with me right on the site. Just contact me. It'll go right to my email. And I 110% promise you I will get back to you. And if you want any of the resources I talked about today, uh, books, anything of that nature, you want me to remind you any of that stuff. I have worksheets I can send you, vision and goals, work all kinds of stuff. Just give me a shout. I'm happy. And I love I love it. So you're, you wouldn't be a bother in the least bit. I highly encourage you to connect with me.
0: Awesome. Well, Rob, I know I speak for Trev when I say uh, we appreciate you taking the time and the fact that you use the word present as how you'd want to be remembered. Very clear that you uh, you're present on the podcast. You're so engaged. You've been uh, awesome kind of behind the scenes as we've been scheduling this. So thank you so much for taking the time and uh, joining us today.
1: Oh, it's more its so much my pleasure. And I'm very grateful to you guys. And for what you're doing, I'm psyched about it.
0: And there you have it, folks, another tale of the Resist 40 Tales of Outliers podcast. And a big thank you to you, Rob, for joining us on the podcast, sharing your story about the early days of image one, and what it then became. After developing company culture, after having systems and operating procedures in place, after casting a vision, not only for the company, but for your own life. And that's something that really stood out to Trev and I was the vision that Rob has cast for his life, for his family, for his personal goals, and how those things really tie in to what it is that he's looking to create with the company also. And I think as we mentioned, Rob being a humble individual, we stayed on the call for a while after the podcast was over continue to talk about the business talk about resist 40 talk about different ways that we can continue to collaborate and just a huge testament to the individual that rob is so as always make sure that you are connecting with us make sure that you're connecting with rob connecting with what it is that he's working on and make sure that if you found value from this episode you're leaving a review leaving a comment and sharing the word so have an incredible week we will see everyone back next week for another tale of Resist 40, Tales of Outliers.